Lord is risen. Alleluia, alleluia. Well, good Easter morning to all of you. And yes, my brothers and sisters, today is still Easter. It is Easter until sunset tonight. And when we go into the Easter season, for the church needs to celebrate not just 24 hours a day, but for a full eight days, the marvelous reality of the saving event of our lives. It's really hard to believe it's been a week since Easter. It seems like it's been two years since Easter, at least to me. And so we want to welcome this morning in our midst two, uh, two men who have gone through the RCIA program to join us in full communion. Paul, who received the fullness of the sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, and Christopher, who made full profession and confirmed in the church. And they are with us and will be with us here until Pentecost, as a visual reminder to us of what we possess in Jesus Christ, his love, his mercy, and forgiveness. It is important for us to reflect upon that the gospel writers were writing with a specific purpose. The initial purpose, all of them were writing to explain more about Jesus Christ, but each author had a particular focus in mind of what they wanted to share with us. And so we see Matthew's gospel, Matthew was writing to only Jewish people. So Matthew has in the most accounts, or the most references, to the Old Testament, because he is trying to show Jesus is the new Moses. Jesus is the Messiah who was prepared from the beginning of time. Luke was a pagan, for practical purposes. He was not Jewish. He was a Greek doctor. So a lot of the Jewish understanding was overlooked by him, because it didn't mean anything to him. He approached the Jesus from a different, from a different view. And today, and throughout the Easter season, we hear from St. John. So in order for us to appreciate this Easter season, we have to understand what it is the focus of St. John's writing. Why did he write his gospel? There were already, he's the last gospel written. So there were already Matthew, Mark, and Luke are out. So what did he write for? What was his purpose? And he had a twofold purpose in his writing. You can argue three. Maybe there is, well, I'll, I'll give you three. There's three. So first and foremost, he wanted to show that God is love, and that through Jesus Christ, the love of God is manifested. Secondly, he wanted to show that, at, that Jesus is the new Adam. So Matthew focused on Jesus as Moses, the new Moses. But John goes back further. John goes back further to the very beginning in Genesis. Jesus is the new Adam who was obedient even to death on the cross. Where Adam was disobedient to the Lord, Jesus, the new Adam, is obedient. Mary, the new Eve, is obedient. So that was the one focus, but the other focus, which is more important for us this morning, is that he wanted to show that Jesus is the new temple. Remember, back on Good Friday, when we heard the account, one of the accusations or charges against Jesus was that he wrote, they mis, uh, misquoted him, but they accused him of destroying the temple, and in three days he will rebuild it. 
But then when we remember when Jesus first said that, John, the apostle, the gospel writer, puts in parentheses he was referring to the temple of his body. So John is very focused how Jesus is the new temple. But for us to understand what John is getting at and what hits home with this Divine Mercy Sunday is understanding what the Jewish people understood the temple was all about. And for that, we need to look more closely at Isaiah and Ezekiel, especially Ezekiel. Because remember, in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has this vision of the temple, and he is instructed by the angel to, as he sees the temple, he sees water flowing out of the temple. And as he's instructed by the angel to walk a hundred cubits, and then he's, he's ankle deep in water, and he's told to walk another hundred, and then he's knee deep, then he's waist deep, and then it goes until he has to swim to get across. And on either side of the shore of the water that's flowing from the temple, there is life, there's vegetation, there's animals. And so for Israel, the temple was the visible sign of God's presence on earth, and therefore it was the source of all life. All life comes from God and therefore comes from the temple. Now, in Passover, it was a requirement that Jews from all over the world, as it was known by then, had to come and offer the Passover meal in Jerusalem, in the Holy City. Because it's not like, it was not like our Easter, where we go to the store, we buy the lamb, and then we put it, we get it, go to our kitchens and prepare it. The lambs had to be brought to the temple and had to be slaughtered specifically by the, by the priests and then was taken home and the meal was prepared. So there are accounts of the temple in which the priests would be ankle deep in the blood coming from the lambs as they're slaughtering all of these lambs for the Passover. But Herod, who was rebuilding the temple, was smart enough if you will, to put in a plumbing system. So there was a drain at the center underneath the, temp the temple altar. And so the blood would come out of that, go down that drain and come out the right side of the temple. And from the right side, it would join and be uh, released into the Kidron Brook. So when people were coming to the temple for Passover, as the sacrifices were beginning, they would have to cross through blood and water, because they'd have to come over the Kindred Brook to get into the Holy City. Now, let's go back to Good Friday. John, who was present at the crucifixion, records an interesting little caveat about the crucifixion. And when the guards come to break the, 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 the kneecap, the knees, of those, other soul, of those others crucified with Jesus to make sure they're dead, the soldier gets to Jesus and sees that he is dead, but to make sure, what does he do? He pierces Jesus' heart. And from piercing the heart, blood and water flow from his side. Blood and water, oh my goodness, blood and water, that's the temple. 
The temple blood and water flows from it. And now from the side of Christ, blood and water flows from it. So John is trying to point out that Jesus is the new temple and all life comes from him. All life comes from participating in his life in which he is God and so therefore sharing in the life of God. This helps us to better appreciate the gospel that we hear today and to understand the Divine Mercy devotion in which today we celebrate Divine Mercy Sunday. Because you notice, you know in the picture, the portrait of Divine Mercy, there is red and white rays coming from the heart of Jesus, symbolizing what? The blood and the water. And so we see in Christ life. We see in Christ the life in which all people, Jesus was lifted up on the cross so that all people may be drawn to him. Just as the temple was the highest point of Israel, so that all people would be brought to the temple. But remember, Israel got a little bit too proud of their status as chosen. And they began to think that chosenness was all about them. We have God, we were chosen, you're a pagan, you're not, tough on you. And they tried to hoard God or keep him to themselves. And so Jesus is constantly getting into arguments with the Pharisees because he's trying to show that God, that God is for all people, not just the chosen few of the Jewish people. And so therefore, you and I have that same responsibility to make sure that Jesus is known by all people we encounter. Because Jesus gives to them, this is how we, this is how we know I'm not Jesus. Because Jesus, okay, Jesus is abandoned by everybody. When he needs his closest followers, when he needs his closest friends, they are out to dodge. Who knows where they are? They're hiding and locked in their upper room, afraid of the Jews. So he has to go through his passion, his death, alone. He appears to them on that Easter Sunday night. Now, I'll tell you, I will tell you right now, if I found those apostles, and all of a sudden Jesus is standing before me, I'd get ready to run and hide. Because I'd be expecting to get the wrath of God for abandoning him. But what does he do? He does the total opposite from what the human experience would expect. He says, peace be with you. And to make sure that they understand that he holds no, harbors no resentment, or harbors no ill will towards them, he tells them again, peace be with you. And then tells them, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. And he breathes on the apostles a special and a unique gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift that enables the, Holy, the apostles to remember what had taken place all those three years he was with them, so they can share it with everyone they encounter. But then, that call is also for you and me. You and me have that same call so that you and I can go forth and witness the love, the mercy, and the forgiveness that God offers to us. But as our Lord revealed to St. Faustina, when he gave the Divine Mercy devotion, he reminded St. Faustina to remind the people that forgiveness and mercy is constantly available to us. However, we must ask for it. God is never an unwelcomed guest in our lives. 
God respects the integrity of our freedom and waits longingly for us to choose him, to call to him, to seek his forgiveness, to immerse ourselves more in his love. But the sad tragedy, my brothers and sisters, is that there are people who profess belief in Jesus Christ. There are people who have been baptized, confirmed, and received the Eucharist, maybe even present here every Sunday, who do not believe that they are loved by God who think that they are still unworthy of the love that God has for us. Hello? Do you see these dipstick apostles? Are they worthy of the love of God after abandoning him? Absolutely not. But does God still love them? Yes, he does. And as I've said to you over and over again, and you'll get tired of hearing me saying this, and I'm going to say this till my dying breath, there is nothing that you and I can do that will make God stop loving us. There is nothing you and I can do that will make God stop loving us. Our experience of the love of God is affected by how we act and what we do and our sinful behavior. But sin does not make God stop loving me. So this is hard to penetrate our brains because unconditional love is so far from our experience in our weakened human condition. But there is nothing, there is nothing you can do. You can think of any person in history and you can think of the worst person you can think of. And I'll let you fill in the blank. But as, regardless of what they did, that did not prevent God from stop loving them. Now that would be hard for us to digest because some people in this world have done awful, horrible things. And yet they are not beyond the love of God. Because God came so that we might have life and have it in abundance. God came to us through his Son so that we might truly know beyond a shadow of a doubt how much he loves us how much he wants to forgive us. And it is right there as a visible symbol and sign to all of us. There is nothing more that God can do to prove to us how much he loves us. If dying on the cross isn't enough, then there is nothing he can do. And that should be more than enough to prove to you and me to prove to you and me how much he loves us. That he would die for us. And he wouldn't just die for us as a collective whole, but he would die for you and me if we were the only person on this planet. Mind-boggling. Head exploded. Wrap the duct tape. It's, un it's, un it's un incomprehensible. The love that God has for us. And if God can love me in all my imperfections and in all of my sinfulness, how can I not love those who God places in my path? How can I not love when I am loved? And you see, this is the mystery of God. 
And this is the mystery of our discipleship with Christ. Because if we don't know we're loved by God, if we don't accept the love that God has for us, then there is no way that we can go and be visible witnesses to that love and mercy and forgiveness out in that world. That world of darkness, of hatred, of division. And we find ourselves just getting sucked into the earthly way of living. Forgetting that through our baptism we share the divine life of Christ and therefore are elevated to a supernatural way of living. My brothers and sisters, on this Divine Mercy Sunday, we recognize, first and foremost, that God is divine. His ways are not our ways. And so therefore, we implore the Lord to enable us to appreciate, to experience, and to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that we are loved by Him. And so much do we acknowledge the love that God has for us that we don't want to keep it to ourselves and hoard it to ourselves, but we want to share it with the whole world, whether they want to hear it or not. Whether they want to hear it or not, we go boldly and profess the love and the mercy of God. Not just by what we say, because you can talk about the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God all you want. But it's more than what we say, but it's more emphatically how we live. The gospel we profess is to be a lived gospel. Words are necessary, but they're not required. They're not mandatory. They help words, but our actions should speak more than our words speak. So that we not just, we talk the talk and we walk the walk. So brothers and sisters, we are grateful this morning that God is merciful, that God is loving, and we pray that as we persevere in our walk with the Lord, we may be more and more open each day to experience in our lives the tremendous love, mercy, and forgiveness He has for each of us. We will always be repentant of our failures to love as He calls us to. We will seek His mercy and His forgiveness, and we will open ourselves more and more to His love that we may be living witnesses to his presence out in that world of darkness that cries out to know the love, the mercy, and the forgiveness of God. Praise be Jesus Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.